ophthalmologists, eye doctors, they will tell you that there are more nearsighted people in the city of New York than any other city in the country. And why is that? It's because of all the tall buildings. The residents there, especially those living and working in Manhattan, they're just hemmed in by all these giant structures. Their field of vision, very limited. I mean, most days they can only see what's standing right there in front of them. Most days they never get a chance to use their eyes to see things that are far away. And the result is, over time, the eyes begin to adjust to that condition. After a while, the eyes become accustomed to only looking at and only noticing what's right there in front of them. And as a result, they become nearsighted. Doesn't that happen to us spiritually, too? It's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. All the way through that book, a contrast is being made between those who live under the sun and those who live above the sun. In other words, those who choose to live without God. That, that could be Christian or not. Most days, people just thinking about themselves, only t taking time to see and consider what's right in front of them. You know, the next problem they have to solve, the, 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 the next bill they have to pay, uh, the next time they get a day off so they get a chance to shop or play golf or they get a chance to sleep in. Every day, life's just all about me and how everything in this world affects me. Am I getting what I want? Am I getting what I need? And God's not even a factor in their thoughts at all. And Solomon says, all the way through the book, Solomon says, when, when you're living life like that, you're chasing after the wind. You're pursuing a life that will not be satisfying and fulfilling. So in contrast to that, in contrast to living under the sun, Solomon says, in order to live well and really see things right, you've got to learn to live above the sun, meaning you need God's perspective. Well, in order to get that perspective, in order to really grasp the bigger picture, sometimes you've got to step out of your normal routine. I mean, just every once in a while, you've got to pause and take a break and, and, and actually put yourself in a different vantage point where you can begin to see things that you didn't notice before. So, come back to New York City. If you were flying over Manhattan, here's what you'd notice. Right in the middle of this busy place, you know, you've got Wall Street, Broadway, the United Nations, where billions of lives are being affected by the activities that take place in those various buildings, right in the middle of all this commerce and innovation, right in the middle of all this busyness and activity, there's this giant lump of grass, this huge park, 843 acres, where during the course of a year, nearly 40 million people at one point or time will come out here and spread out their blankets and have a picnic or throw frisbees with the dogs or take a jog down one of the trails that's lined with all these beautiful trees. In fact, the biggest activity of all, the most important, is what happens every single day in this park when people take a lunch break or they just come out for an afternoon stroll. They come out to get away from the noise and the crowds and the craziness of the city and just take a moment to sit down and enjoy the view. That's why there's more than 9,000 benches sitting out there in Central Park. That's what they call this place, Central Park, and they call it that for a reason because that park is central. It is absolutely essential to the life and health of that city. I mean, imagine a businessman, and he's flying over Manhattan, and he sees all this green grass. What's he thinking to himself? Man, look at all this wasted space. Think of all the buildings we could put up here. Think of all the business we could do. And yet he would be mistaken. Because anybody who's lived in New York for any period of time will tell you, without that park, the city just implodes. Without that park, people lose their sanity. Everybody needs a central park in their daily, weekly, monthly routine. And why is it? It's because of the way we're made. Every human being needs a time and a place where they can decompress, where they can get away from all the concrete and steel and all that man-made stuff and have an opportunity to just see nature, just to enjoy creation, where it's not just your body but your very soul that now has a chance to get a breath of fresh air 
And in doing that, you get a new perspective. You get a whole new sense of clarity. You begin to realize what really matters. So the question is, where is the Central Park in your life? You may have to tear down a few buildings. You may have to remove a few items from that to-do list in order to create that kind of space. But where is that time and place where you go to meet God? where you go to get away from all the chaos and give yourself really a chance to hear his voice and begin to see and understand things from his point of view. Well, the Bible teaches that one of the ways in which we can create that kind of space where God has a chance to just really speak to us and really begin to work in our lives, the Bible says one of the ways in which we can create that kind of space in our lives is when we learn how to fast. Now, I know some of you, you hear that word fasting and it kind of scares you. I mean, you put fasting in the same category, shaving your head or walking barefoot across a fire pit. Something strange and weird. And Hey, David, I'm sorry. I'm just not into that. You can talk to somebody else. Don't turn me off. Fasting is not nearly as strange or unusual as you might think. Consider, what do we call the first meal of the day? Breakfast. And why do we call it that? Because after a long night, after a long period of time where we haven't eaten anything at all, we wake up to break our fast. Or how many of you have ever had to prep for a test at the doctor's office or get ready for a surgery at the hospital. And you remember the orders that you were given? No food or drink after midnight. You had to fast until that exam was over or until the surgery was complete. And why? The fasting was important. The fasting was a way of putting yourself in a position where now you could receive something that you really needed, like the right information from that medical exam or the corrective surgery to repair that injury so your body would now have a chance to heal. Or how many times have we skipped a meal and we didn't miss it a bit because we were so busy shopping or working on a hobby or playing a game? I mean, here we were in the middle of something so fun, we didn't want to stop or take a break. Hey, I'll, I'll catch a bite later. I'd rather do this right now. See, fasting is not that unusual. We've all done it. Different times, different ways. Well, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about fasting, it talks about fasting for a purpose and for the right purpose. And if you don't do it for the right reason, you're going to miss the point. In other words, fasting is not a hunger strike. You know, a group of prisoners, they band together, and for days they refuse to eat because they want to call attention to the unfair treatment and the bad conditions. They want to make the public aware that something's happening here that should not be going on. And so that hunger strike becomes a form of protest, a way of twisting arms and moving people to action, a way of getting things done that otherwise would have been ignored. The Bible never, never encourages us to treat God like that. God will not respond to that kind of manipulation. Hey, God, look at me. You see how miserable I am? You see all the meals that I've been missing? You better start paying attention to my requests. You better start answering my prayers, or you're going to be responsible for how weak and frail I am. It's like holding a gun to his head. That's called blackmail. That is so unworthy of God. I mean, you're treating God like he's some kind of unrighteous judge, like he's somebody who's hard to get along with, and that's not true. The truth is God is rich in mercy and he's full of kindness and you never have to twist his arm in order to get him to care. I mean, really care about you and your needs. In other words, in the Bible, fasting is all about us, not about God. Fasting is a way to, to get the kinks out of our spirit. So now God's free to carry out his purpose and just have his way in us. You know, what happens when you get a kink in the hose? The water stops. It's not flowing anymore. Or what happens late at night, you, you know, you got your arm laying in this unnatural position. It's like that for hours. And it's almost like there's a kink in the vein or the, the artery. So the blood flow is now diminished. And what happens? The arm goes to sleep. 
So what do you do to fix that? You reposition the arm. You reposition the hose. You take the kinks out so everything can start flowing again. That's what fasting is. You're, you're repositioning your soul so you can restore that connection with God. So now he's got an opportunity to draw near to you in ways that maybe he hasn't been able to before. I think it was just a couple months ago that I told you the story. I, I want to be honest with you. I try to take notes, but sometimes I honestly can't remember. Did I share that in a small group or was that in a class setting or with everybody here on a Sunday morning? So forgive me if I'm repeating too much, but I think it was a couple months ago I told you the story about Willie Shoemaker. True story. He's one of the greatest jockeys of all time. Well, when he was dating the woman who would end up becoming his wife, he discovered she was allergic to horses. I mean, hey, of all things, here's a guy who makes his living riding horses. How does he ever hope to approach or get close to this lady who immediately breaks out in highs as she just sniffs or catches the slightest smell of a horse? I mean, how's this going to work out? Well, the answer is every single day, Willie Shoemaker, before he left work, he would take off the clothes that he'd been wearing all day long around the horses and just leave them there at the track. And then he would take a shower and scrub himself with surgical precision so he could remove every scent and smell of those horses. And then he put on a clean set of clothes and head home. And then once he got home, just to make sure that he didn't cause his wife any kind of discomfort at all, he would take a second shower. He wanted to make sure those horses were not any kind of issue at all, not anything at all that would come between himself and his wife. Are there things that have come between us and the Lord? Then maybe it's time to declare a fast and put those things aside so God can get close to us and once again, we can get close to him. That's what they used to do in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. It was the one day of the year when God required everybody to fast. Because the Day of Atonement was like a national day of repentance. The Hebrew word for repent literally means turn. So here was a day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Here was a day when the whole nation of Israel came together to turn, to turn the page, to turn over a new leaf, to literally turn around morally and spiritually speaking, turning away from their sin and turning back to God. So on the Day of Atonement, they would all gather, the nation of Israel, they'd come together and together they would confess their sin. And then together they'd watch these special ceremonies and sacrifices, especially with these two goats, where they would watch how God provided a covering for their sin. And once again, the temple was purified, and now God and Israel could be reconciled. They could get, get, get close together again. And what made this day special, one of the things that made this day special, that set it apart from every other day of the year, was on this day everybody would fast. On this day, you were not just turning to God with your heart and your soul. You were turning to him with your very body. You see, here was something important to you. Food. Hey, you got to have some fuel to keep you going, right? But here is something even more important than that. My life and my relationship with God. So on this day, I set all those other important things aside for what is most important of all. I want to get close to him. Now, there are all kinds of other examples of fasting in the Bible. And when you step back and you kind of look at all those examples, you notice a pattern. Fasting always seems to be a response, a response to some urgent need or to some imminent danger or some horrible tragedy or some enormous challenge. And we immediately turn to God because if we don't have his help here, we don't have any hope. So like, for example, 1 Samuel chapter Chapters 1 and 2, you read about Hannah, the lady Hannah, and she's responding to her barrenness and all the shame that went along with it. And through a time of prayer and fasting, she seeks a son from God. 
Or you think about Nehemiah weeping over the city of Jerusalem because the walls are down and God's will is being thwarted. So in response to this horrible situation, now through a time of prayer and fasting, he seeks the mind of God. God, is there a way for the walls to be rebuilt? Or maybe it's Queen Esther imploring all her people to pray and fast because there's a situation, an evil man by the name of Haman, and he's already got a plan in place where he intends to wipe out the entire Jewish race. And so in response to that, Queen Esther's getting ready to take this big risk to go seek an audience with the king and ask him to do something that's never been done in history before, to get a Persian king to change his mind. And on and on it goes. Every time you watch this example of fasting, it always seems to be a response some kind of need or threat or danger or tragedy or some enormous challenge, and we immediately turn to God and ask for his help. And with all those examples of fasting, you also see all different kinds of fasting going on. Back in Bible times, typically Jewish people, when they would fast, they do it for a 12-hour period of time, after a light breakfast, before a large dinner later on that evening. From sunup to sundown, in the daylight hours, they would refrain from food. Or sometimes Jewish people, when they, in Bible times, when they would choose to do a fast, they'd do it for a 24-hour period, from the evening meal of one day to the evening meal of the next. This is probably what the Bible has in mind when in Luke chapter 2 it calls our attention to this elderly lady, this saint, a lady by the name of Anna, and it tells us she never left the temple. Every day she was praying and fasting. And that's probably the kind of fasting the Bible's talking about. Or sometimes the Bible will talk about a partial fast, like what we read in the book of Daniel. I mean, later on, Daniel chapter 10, you learn Daniel fasted in a lot of other kind of ways, too. But there in chapter 1, along with his friends, they choose not to eat at the king's table. They choose for a limited period of time to restrict themselves to a very simple diet of vegetables and water, no meat, no wine. So all kinds of examples of fasting in the Bible and all different kinds of ways in which that fasting is carried out. In fact, the word fasting literally means cover the mouth. You're restricting what you allow to enter your stomach so that for a period of time you can concentrate on filling your soul with God's word and God's thoughts. In fact, some people take it a step further. They choose not only to cover the mouth, they choose to cover the eyes, cover the ears. Sometimes for a limited period of time they'll take a fast from TV or take a fast from the internet or take a fast from listening to certain forms of music because they not only want to restrict what enters the stomach, they want to restrict and filter what enters the heart. Now, with all that background in mind, maybe we can better understand and appreciate what we're going to read here in Acts chapter 13. Just for a brief period of time, let's take a look at this. This, this is a pivotal, these three verses at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 3, this is a pivotal section of Scripture. It's almost like a hinge on a door. Because what happens from this moment on in the book of Acts is just big. I mean, really big. It's like from this moment on, a large door opens up, and now we begin to see the gospel spread in ways that most people never would have imagined. I mean, up to this point in the book of Acts, the gospel has been pretty much limited to the nation of Israel and a few places right around it. But now, from this moment on, we're going to watch the gospel spread to Greece and Rome and Asia, even Spain. And up to this point, for the past 12 years, the Apostle Paul, he's been kind of working behind the scenes in the background. We haven't seen or heard much of him. But now, from this moment on, he's going to be front and center. We're going to watch him and his friends go on three different missionary tours. We're going to watch Paul write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. It's almost like from this moment on, there's an explosion of the gospel. And it's here in verses 1, 2, and 3. We watch how God lights the fuse to set off that explosion. And what gives God this opportunity to light the fuse, to create something really, really big? 
because the believers in the church at Antioch came together to pray and to fast. Watch what it says. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. These are the leaders of the church. There are five men shepherding this congregation. It's Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they, and we're not just talking about those five men, the, the word they there, we're talking about the whole church. When they came together to meet on the first day of the week, here's why they came together. And they came together to worship the Lord and to fast. And now with that kind of atmosphere, with that kind of environment, now the Holy Spirit can really go to work. And it's in this atmosphere the Holy Spirit speaks, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And so they fast again, and they pray again, and the entire church lays their hands on Saul and Barnabas, and they send them off on a new mission to other parts of the world. All kinds of new things happening here. Now, for the very first time here at the Church of Antioch, it's not just Jews, but we have Jews and Gentiles worshiping together in the same place. And now, for the very first time, as we learn back in Acts chapter 11, now for the very first time, it's here at Antioch that the disciples are being referred to and called Christian because both inside and outside the church, everybody recognizes everything they do is centered around Jesus. He is the predominant influence upon their lives. So here's this church. They come together to worship and to fast. And it's through that worshiping and fasting, it's almost like they're saying, okay, God, what's next? What's the next step for us? What kind of future do you have in mind for this church? What is your will for us? So they pray and they fast to get all the kinks out, to make sure they're totally open to God and His leading. And it's in that atmosphere that the Holy Spirit's able to really move and work and to begin to do something really, really special through this church. It was 1993, Kevin Carter was working as a photographer in Africa, in the southern part of Sudan. And he took this picture It's hard for me. He won the Pulitzer Prize for this. At the front of the picture, you notice this little girl. She's starving to death. In fact, she's so weak, she can't even stand up anymore. Her body, so emaciated, just doesn't have the resources anymore to carry on. It, it'll be just a matter of minutes before she takes her final breath. And there, there in the back, you see the vulture standing there, waiting and watching for that little one to die. Three months after he took this picture, Kevin Carter committed suicide because he couldn't take it anymore. He could not get this image out of his mind. I mean, he saw scenes like this all over the nation of Sudan. And there was just something about this this little girl lying there helplessly in the dirt and watching the vulture just stand there waiting to feast upon her body just tore him up and made him realize we are living in a world that is seriously out of balance. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet as he thought about it, he had no answer. How do you correct this and make things right? Because this is happening all over. How do you correct this and make this right? And because he had no answer, because he saw no hope, he decided to end his life too. All through the Bible, when you watch people fast, they're fasting for a reason. Because they're responding either to a dire need or an imminent danger or an awful tragedy or some urgent challenge. And they are so moved by what they see, they immediately turn to God. And they turn to him not just with their heart and their soul. They turn to him with their body too. And they implore him to act. God, 
You've got to do something here or we've got no hope. And it's in that process of making that request while we're fasting, we're offering ourselves to God and saying, and God, as you respond to this situation, let me be a part of the answer. Let me be a part of the solution. And that's exactly what you see happening here in Acts chapter 13. Here during a time of prayer and fasting, the Holy Spirit is able to make this church at Antioch aware that they're not to be confined and defined by the four walls of their building. No, as a church, they were called by God to reach out, to bring the church to the world because we are his messengers of hope for those who are hurting and suffering. And so the church did that. I mean, one example, through the second century, there were massive plagues occurring all over the Roman Empire. And literally thousands of people had come running out of the city because they didn't want to get infected by that plague, infected by that disease. But while they were running out, it was the Christians who came running into town so they could care for the sick and the dying. Because wherever Christians go, that's where the church is. And it's still true today. Wherever you go, that's where the church is. That's why every day the church, you'll find the church in classrooms and doctor's offices and restaurants. Every day you'll find the church hanging out at factories and construction sites and grocery stores because wherever you are, that's where the church is. And that means in that moment, in that situation, you are God's agent of hope. You are to bring a piece of heaven to earth so that one day through the Lord Jesus Christ, the people of this earth can be brought to heaven. That's our mission. Well, it's through a time of prayer and fasting that we put ourselves in a place where now the Holy Spirit can really get a hold of our hearts and He can begin to equip us so we can be successful in carrying out that mission. I want New Hope to be like this church, the church at Antioch, a church that is always willing to pray and to ask, what's next, God? What's next for me and my family? What's next for me and this church, God? How do you, here in this time and this place, how do you want us to reach out and help others? And it's through that time of prayer and fasting that we trust that God will make his will known to us. There's two ways we can begin to do that as a church. This next weekend, we're going to have a 24-hour prayer chain. Friday night, 7 o'clock to Saturday night, 7 o'clock. For 24 hours, we're asking people to pray. Somebody to sign up for every one of, you know, make sure every one of those hours is filled. You can either come here the church campus and we'll have some special environments set up for you or you can pray from your home or wherever you happen to be but to know that every hour for that 24-hour period somebody's going to be praying God give us your leading show new hope how you want us to serve this community make it clear how we can serve and make an impact on our world and then the second unique way we can really come together as a church and pray on the wall today on the far wall out there in the foyer you're going to see a chart where we're asking every member of this church to pick one meal in the month of March and one meal in the month of April where instead of eating, you're going to pray and fast. I mean, whether that's breakfast, lunch, supper, that's, that's up to you. You pick the day, and on that day, it's just going to be one meal. But for that one meal, rather than eating, you're going to just focus upon the Lord. And God, show us what's next for New Hope. I think God's given us a wonderful example here in Acts chapter 13, an example we need to follow. When these believers came together on the first day of the week, they came together to worship and to pray. I want us to do that today. I want us to take a moment as a church to just pray. Can I ask this favor? We've done this from time to time. I'd like to do it again. If it's possible for you, can we get down on our knees to pray today? 
I know some of you, for health reasons, medical reasons, I understand. You can't do that. That's okay. You remain seated. I know in your heart you're going to be kneeling before the Lord. But sometimes I just think it helps to, with the very posture of our body to humble ourselves before God. So if there's not space where you are right there, you can come down to the front row. You can join me down here at the platform. Let's find a place to kneel. And then let me guide you through this time of prayer. You get a place to kneel, and we're going to begin to pray. As we begin our time of prayer, let's begin with a moment of worship. Let's just consider who God is, that he is the maker of heaven and earth, the world and the entire universe belongs to him, and it's all under his control. Is that not a comforting thought? And here's what's best of all. Not only is God almighty and all-powerful, he is a God of love. He cares about his creation, and he cares about his people. So for just a moment, just silently from your heart, would you lift up your praise to God for who he is, and would you give thanks to God for the way, I mean, he's faithful, the way every single day he loves us and helps us. Just lift up your praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Now I want us to take a moment to confess to get the kinks out of our heart if there's anything, anything at all that has come between us and the Lord, some sin, some idol, some obsession that we have, some dream, plan, or ambition that, that's become more important to us than our life and relationship with the Lord, it's time to confess that sin. It's time to ask God to remove those obstacles, to remove anything that hinders his access to our hearts. Let's pray for God to once again draw near to us so we can draw near to him. Let's, let's pray for God to restore our personal connection to him. Take this moment to confess. Now let's take a moment to seek God's guidance. We're Christians. We belong to Jesus. We are here to represent him. So let's ask God to open the eyes of our hearts so we can see the people he wants us to help and see the places he wants us to serve. Let's seek God's guidance for us as individuals and let's seek God's guidance for new hope. Now I want you to join me in saying the Lord's Prayer. And when we get down to that line, forgive us our trespasses, because that's what sin is. We're trespassing. We're stepping into places where we shouldn't be. So let's just use that expression for that part of the prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And please keep in mind as we say this prayer out loud and together, 
Think about who we are talking to. Pray this with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand and finish with a song. Let's join the praise team and finish on a note of worship to God.